Well, we've been talking about the symbols of Christmas. And last week, of course, we looked at the Christmas tree. How the Christmas tree is sort of a symbol of the good news of great joy for all people. And if you were here, we hammered that home. That Jesus came to bring good news of great joy for all people. Well, once again, I took to Facebook this week and I did a poll to say, what is that one symbol of Christmas that stands out in your mind besides the Christmas tree? In other words, when you close your eyes and you think about Christmas, what's the one image, the one object, the one thing that is associated with Christmas that pops into your mind? And you know, everybody had a lot of different symbols that they thought of. Some of them were more abstract and they just said salvation. And some said the baby Jesus and others said the manger. And I think that was probably the most predominant answer. And after hearing the song that she just sang and hearing away in a manger, maybe that's what I should have picked this week, but I didn't. This week I picked something that only one person got right. And for right now, I can't remember who it was. I meant to check it. But if you're here and you know that it was you, then you can feel the satisfaction. The Christmas wreath. That's the symbol that I thought we would look at today. Now, some of you are looking at me and saying, what? A Christmas wreath? I mean, yeah, it's okay. They're pretty, especially the ones that Kelly has put up in here. They're, they're beautiful. That's a picture of one of them. You know, yeah, they're nice, but that's not something that, you know, I would really jump out at me and that I would think a lot of. In fact, I, I remember as a kid, you know, we really, really didn't think that much about the wreath. I, I think my mom hung Christmas wreaths. I, I'm, I'm sure she did. I don't remember. Now, I know Barb has hung Christmas wreaths uh, at our house, and that's nice. Sometimes she has wreaths all year long, you know. People who are real crafty, they like to do that. Um, but I don't have this, you know, special kind of emotional story about a Christmas wreath that jumps out at me. Do, do you? Does anybody have one like that? If you do, I'd love to hear it because I've never heard one. But, you know, as I looked at what the wreath means, the symbol of it, it grabbed hold of my heart. And I said, that's what I want us to think about today. Because more than the object is the meaning that comes out to us during this holiday season. And so as we think about this, there's three basic truths that we need to think about with our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's after all what we're all about. That's what this holiday season is. It's about Jesus. Christ mass, Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who would be King of Kings and Lord and Lords that we look forward to one day returning and, and bringing absolute control over all the earth and to uh, live under his reign for all eternity. And then mass, a worship of Christ. And so it's all about him. But the first truth that we need to think about is that we are at war with God in our natural state. Now, you may not like to think that way, but we are. You realize that if you have never trusted Jesus, you are at war with Jesus. Now, you've heard about the war on Christmas. It gets brought up from time to time. I haven't heard as much about it lately, but 
It seems like maybe in this era it might be even more pronounced, even though we don't talk about it as much. But you know, the war on Christmas has been this idea that you can't say Merry Christmas. You have to say Happy Holidays. And and that if Christ has anything to do with the celebration, we need to absolutely sanitize that. We want to get rid of it. It's offensive to people who aren't Christians. Well, what about people who are? You know, is it offensive to us to not be able to say Merry Christmas when you go out in public? That doesn't seem to be as important. But that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the war on Christmas or the war against Christmas that maybe some in our culture want to to fight. They want to eliminate Christ from Christmas, which you can't do, by the way. We have to totally change the holiday. Instead, I want to talk about what you and I face in our relationship with Jesus. We are at war with God in our natural state. Look at James chapter 4, 4. We're going to jump around to a bunch of scriptures. Uh, You can follow me in your Bible. But uh, today, look at James chapter 4, 4 to begin with. And this verse simply says in the Christian Standard Bible, you adulterous people. Boy, that's some pretty harsh words, aren't they? Uh, Calling someone an adulterer. Uh, That's, you better have something to back that up with, especially if you're calling your spouse that. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Jesus said it this way, you can't serve both God and money because you'll prefer one over the other. You have to have one master. And in this world, we have to have one master. When he says, you adulterous generation, he picks up the Old Testament theme that was repeated over and over again by God as he criticized through his prophets his own people who had uh, been unfaithful to him and ran away from him and stopped obeying his covenant laws. And you know, a lot of people are that way today. The Bible teaches us that that is the truth. After all, look at what it says, Matthew 6, 24. It says, no one can serve two masters since he will either hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's really hard. We want to make money a part of our life because money makes the world go around, as they say. The old 60s or 70s song, I can't remember where it came from, but uh, money makes the world go round, they sang. And that's so true. Everything, it seems to all be about money. But you can't serve money and serve God. You can't make money your biggest and most important focus in life and make God your most important focus in life. Because those two are contradictory. You'll be at war with God. You see, you and I, we have two natures in our lives. There is that sinful nature where I put myself on on the throne of my life. And I sit there and I honor myself, I serve myself, I make certain that I get everything I want out of life and I don't worry about God whatsoever. And every person at some point in their life does that. We are all sinful people. Even if you're a Christian, you make mistakes and put yourself at the center of your life. That's why we need to repent. And when we repent, we turn away from ourself and then we put God on the throne of our life. He becomes most important. But you can't have it both ways. A faithful Christian can't live here in the center of these two priorities. It's either one or the other. 
You don't have a choice. You know, I, I read recently about an experiment a man by the name of Paul Kinsella did in Belleville, Illinois. He intentionally lost 100 wallets around the city. And in each wallet was um, a fake $50 gift certificate and there was a $10 bill. Now that's not a lot, but it was enough that people would take notice of it. And they opened it up, maybe trying to find out you know, where it came from or who it belonged to. And the local police department received most of those hundred wallets. 74 of them were turned in. Now let me ask you that. Does, does that surprise you? As I looked at that, I thought, well, maybe you know, their honesty jumped out because there really wasn't that much. And they said, I'm not going to sell my character for 70 bucks. You know, two $10 bills. I said one earlier. I think it was actually two $10 bills. Uh, and, and a $50 fake gift certificate. And the Lieutenant Don Sachs of the police department there said, I think it's a great day. I think it's great that they did return the wallets, especially with such a small amount of money being in there. But you know, even though 74 did return them, what does that mean? 26 didn't make it back. And I almost guarantee you many of those wallets, the money made it into people's pockets. I wonder if anyone tried to cash in those gift certificates, how they would have been ashamed. You see, Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even if you had turned in the wallet, if you were one of the finders, there's some other sin in your life that you're guilty of. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul knew that. He knew that we had that sinful nature. And that we are at war between our sinful nature. After all, he said in Romans 7, 15, For I do not understand what I'm doing, talking about sin. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if you're a Christian, I hope you hate your sin. I hope after you're done sinning, you feel terrible about it. By the way, that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you feel guilty for sin. Because it means you have the Holy Spirit working on your life. Amen. He's trying to convict you. If you don't feel guilty for sin, either you have so pushed him far away that you can't hear him anymore, or he's not in your life in the first place. I told someone I was sharing Christ with just this last week, if you feel guilty for your sin, that's a good sign that you've already trusted Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit. But it's not a guarantee because it might be the first time the Holy Spirit's trying to grab hold of your heart. And so I told this person who was a little bit confused about whether they were a Christian, just, you know what? It doesn't cost you anything to pray again. It's okay. Start over. If you're not certain about it, if you don't have guarantee, just, just say, Let, let's make sure. Dear Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I'm so sorry that I've sinned. Will you please take my sin away? I want to live for you. I commit from this day forth to live for you. If you've got doubt about your salvation, just pray. Because that's what it takes. It's so simple. It's almost criminal how easy it is to get saved. But you know, while it might have been easy for us, it was very difficult for Jesus. He had to leave heaven and come to this earth and die for us. Taking our sin to the grave and to hell. And then he rose again by the power of the creator of the world. And then he offers it to you. How hard is it for you to forgive somebody when they've really seriously wronged you. And he does it billions of times over. 
He's willing to forgive all 7 billion people living on the face of the earth. I don't think it's quite 7. But you know, over history's time, it's been more than 7. And he would have forgiven every one of them if they had asked sincerely. So just pray again. Ask the Lord and he will forgive you. And you know what? You don't have to be at war with God any longer. But we are in a struggle with ourselves. We're at war with God and every struggle, there's a winner and a loser. That's our second basic truth. We're at war with God and in every war, there's a struggle in ourselves. We are at, uh, in a struggle and in our struggle, there's a winner and there's a loser. You know, when you think about sports, there's this idea of the spoiler. And you guys hear me talk about sports probably too much sometimes. It's something I really love. But you know what a spoiler is? A spoiler is a team that has no chance at winning the championship in that sport. But they meet another team that's in contention for a championship in that sport. And if the bad team who doesn't have a chance beats the good team who does have a chance, they can spoil that opportunity. And so you see this a lot. You know, some teams will say, I really want to beat them. We're not going to go to the Super Bowl this year, but I sure would like to stop them from going. We're not going to be able to go to the World Series or the National Championship in football or basketball. But wouldn't it be great if we could stop them from doing it? I can remember a few Christmases ago, many Christmases ago when I was a kid, <clears throat> my favorite team, the Green Bay Packers, had not been to the playoffs in forever. They weren't very good when I was growing up. Sometimes I wonder why I became a fan of one of the worst teams in football as a kid. See, I don't remember the Lombardi era in the 60s. Those of you who are older do. I came up on the uh, era when Bart Starr was a really bad uh, coach instead of a really great quarterback. But this one year, they had a chance to go, and it was Christmas Eve, and they were playing the Chicago Bears, our hated rival. The Chicago Bears that year weren't very good either. But the Packers had a chance to go to the playoffs for the first time in 10 years almost. almost. And it had been more than 10 years before that last time. So it was uh, only the second time in 20 years. And so I'm rooting and I'm excited and I can't uh, wait to think about it. Maybe having Packer playoffs and those stupid Chicago Bears were the spoiler. <laughs> and they ruined it. Well, I want you to know something. The reason I share that with you is Satan wants to be a spoiler with every Christian. He knows that he's lost you for good. At least I think he does. The minute you give your life to Jesus Christ and say, I'm yours, Lord. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. Satan gets really angry. He says, oh, yeah, yeah you may have given your life to Jesus, but you're not going to get anyone else. I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to destroy you. That's what it says in John 10.10. 10. It says that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. But you know, today they are one of the closest allies of the United States. Why is that? Because when they surrendered and gave themselves up to us... We began to rebuild and we rebuilt a relationship. And you know, with God, we have that same chance. When you give your life to Christ, you can rebuild. And you were at war with him, but you can now become his greatest ally if you'll just serve him and sacrifice for him every single day. But Satan doesn't want that to happen. 
So he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy everything you've got. To take it away. But you know what? You don't have to let that happen. You can make a choice to follow the Holy Spirit in your life. Whom God plants in your heart. And and he's there guiding you and, and directing you, comforting you, sealing you for all eternity. So that you can be certain that you're ready if he was to come right now. That you wouldn't have to feel guilty about the fact that you see Jesus Christ because there's sinful uh, attitudes or actions in your life that are unforgiven or that have been uh, uh, unconfessed rather. Pastor Steve Yeshek is from Crystal Lake, Illinois, and he lost his sister after a five-year battle with cancer. He said that when she became a teenager, she became a party animal. She got really wild. She was the drinker and the life of the party. Every party she went to. Now she was also very popular, very attractive. And so she was at the center of everyone's attention. But she used that, you know, in in bad ways, not in good ways. But then she grew up a little bit and got married, but they were having problems in their marriage. And again, it was because of her attitudes and her actions. And her husband really wasn't much better. And then she found out that her husband had cancer. That's right, I said her husband had cancer. He kind of turned his life around after that. She wasn't ready to do so. And then she found out she had cancer. Can you imagine that? Both spouses in a relationship getting cancer. And when that happened, suddenly she started listening to her brother who would occasionally share Christ with her. She started listening and hearing his witness, and he led her to Jesus Christ. She started coming to her church when she was physically able towards the end of that five years. And with all the gusto that she had put into partying it up and and being the life of the party, she put that same sort of level of of gusto and, and vigor into her Christian life and started to grow so fast in Jesus She became a huge witness. Everywhere she went, she wanted to tell people about how she had been this horrible, terrible person. And yet God used cancer to wake her up. And it turned her around and she gave her life to Jesus. And she was so thankful for that. And so she just kept on going and kept on trying. And sadly, after her five-year bout and about six months after she got saved, she died. A lot of people looked at that. And said, wow, what a terrible thing that God did to her. But even she said, before it happened, just before she died, she said, nope, that's not the truth. The truth is, he woke me up. What would have been terrible is if he had never saved me. But he did. And I didn't really even deserve that, but he changed my life. And now if I die, I'll get to be with him in heaven. And so she shared that testimony and her brother got up to preach her funeral. And and he read that message from her written on her deathbed. At that funeral, her 84-year-old father was in attendance and he got saved. Her ex-husband the one she had known before her present husband, he came, he got saved. There were other family members who weren't believers. And a few of them heard her testimony and they got saved at her funeral. 
And then some of those friends that she went out partying with and drinking with, they heard her testimony and they got saved. About a hundred people at her funeral service got saved. They planned a funeral service. God planned a revival. Was she a success? People might say, no, what a failure. I mean, she didn't beat cancer. Yeah, that's not right. She herself said that when she dies and goes to heaven, that she'll be healed. And it'll be a real healing. You know, you might think you've gotten healed if you've ever overcome a sickness or an illness. But, you know, you, you get over the flu or you get over COVID or, or, you know, you have a broken bone that heals. But you know what? Weeks later or years later, you still are a little sick. Because all of us, the minute we quit growing, we start dying. But when you get to heaven, that process has ended. And forever you are in victory. And that's the third truth that we gain from our understanding of our relationship with Jesus Christ this holiday. And that is that we can win, but only by surrendering to God first. You're at war with God. And there's also a struggle between whether you're going to be a winner or a loser. But you can be a winner, but it means you have to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus taught his disciples that. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. I want to read verses 34 through 38. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Jesus is teaching his disciples about this very idea. And in verse 34 of Mark 8, he says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. That's the surrender part. I'm no longer on the throne of my lifetime. I now give Jesus that throne. He becomes in control. So you surrender yourself. You you deny yourself. You take up his cross. You say, I'm going to live for him. And you do so by following Jesus' perfect example. Verse 35, it says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And in one sense, you might say that Pastor Steve Prezhnik's sister gave up her life for Jesus. Now, she really didn't have the choice. I think if she had been asked, you know, would you rather get cured of cancer or die? I think she'd probably pick cure. But God used her death to bring almost a hundred or over a hundred people to Jesus Christ because of her testimony. And knowing what she knows now about heaven, she'd say, I'd do it all over again. In verse 36, it says, For what does it benefit someone to gain, or you might even say to win, the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of his Father and the holy angels. You hear that last part? He says, If you are not accepting of me in a public way. In other words, if you're ashamed of me in your life and you're not willing to be a witness for me, that that proves something. That proves you don't really love me. You don't really believe who I am. 
And when Jesus comes again and he stands before God as our advocate, our trial attorney, our defense attorney before the judge in that court case in which all of us will have to answer for our life. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've served him in your life, then that's proof that you believe in him and you love him and you've accepted his gift of eternal life. And that court case is fixed. It's fixed in your favor because the judge is the daddy of your lawyer. <laughs> it's all rigged for you, not against you. But if you're not willing to stand up for Jesus, it proves you're not really his child. You're not really a servant of him. And as a result of that, he will not stand up for you. A lot of us love at this time of year, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. Maybe not now as much as it used to be, but every year I would watch this. And as I would watch it, I loved it every year. To be honest, I've gotten a little tired of it, but some of you are going, what? And you're about to throw rocks at me for saying that. But I still love it. So now it's about every few years that I watch it. But you know, there's a little tiny detail in that movie that a lot of people miss. Early on in that film, uh, about halfway through, I think it is, you know, his brother wins a medal for uh, heroism at war. And so everybody in the town's all abuzz, and it's Christmas Eve. And George Bailey, you know, he's all out uh, passing around newspapers and bragging about him. But there's one little thing on his arm that a lot of people don't think a lot about of a, a lot about, and that is, it's a wreath, a Christmas wreath to bring home to the family, for them to hang as part of their decorations. And um, he goes through his day, and things just kind of get worse. Turns out that his uncle Billy has lost eight thousand dollars, and he doesn't want Uncle Billy to get hurt by it. But you know, it, what's going to happen here? And it seems like old man Potter, who kind of runs everything and runs everything into the ground, it seems, has, finds out about it and he's coming after him. And also the bank examiner shows up to, you know, investigate, you know, and I know Dennis, you and Cindy know about the bank examiner coming, how stressful that can get. Shows up on that day and that Christmas wreath that he brings into the bank gets left somewhere. So later in the movie, when he finally makes it home, all the family asks, did you bring the Merry Christmas wreath? One of their daughters asks. No, I left it at work. Suddenly it becomes unimportant. You and I look at that and that's a small insignificant detail, right? Maybe some of you didn't even remember it was there. But that brings us to what does the Christmas wreath mean? What's the symbolism of it? At the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, they brought back a tradition that had died, that hadn't been used in the Olympics since their beginning in ancient times. And that is that every person would not only get a gold, silver, or bronze medal, but they would get a crown, which was actually a wreath that they'd place on their head. What did that wreath symbolize? Excellence and victory. Most importantly, though, the victory. You know, the Kentucky Derby winner and other horse racing winners, what do they do? They put a big old wreath around that horse's neck. It symbolizes victory for that, for that horse. Before Christianity came to Germany, people would gather 
And they would take branches from evergreen trees during the winter holiday, and they would fashion them into a round wreath, and they would do it in very large round wreaths, and they'd torch them. They'd burn them all up. And the fire was something they'd gather around, and it was something, a symbol to each of them of the warmth of uh, that holiday in the middle of winter. And it was also a symbol of a better day is coming. And so the wreath in Germany kind of was adopted by Christians and brought into their celebration along with Christmas trees and and, uh, candles and other things. And it was symbolizing a couple of things. Number one, the hope that Christmas brings into our lives. The hope that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you get a place in heaven for all eternity. And also that victory. Today it also means victory. A wreath means victory. So when you see a wreath, don't think little of it. Remind yourself of what it really means. And by the way, it's round, isn't it? You know, at marriage ceremonies, when I perform them, I take the ring and I hold it up just like this. And I say, this ring is round. And it represents the eternal nature of marriage. You are married for the rest of your life. Until death do you part. And so as a result of that, the round wreath symbolizes that eternal hope that we have because of our victory in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll hold on to that hope if you have it. I hope you have that hope. And if you don't, I want to invite you to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.